Welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to GDPR and all things privacy. GDPR Now is brought to you by This Is DPO. And today we are talking about SARS, personal data and all things related. And in particular, we're going to be talking about a piece of litigation that's just happened in the UK, Mr. Rudd against a Mr. Biddle, in which Mr. Rudd alleged that the SAR he had made had not been correctly responded to. It went to court and it's a judgment we will be talking about when we get there. I am Mark Sherwood-Edwards, the host for today, and I'm joined in the studio with two lawyers from the London office of McDermott, Will and Emery, Ashley Winton. Hello. And Laura Scaife. Hello. And before we go any further, if you could just say a bit about yourself, so that'd be helpful. Ashley, why don't you go first? Hi, Mark. Thanks for inviting us onto this podcast. I'm Ashley Winton. I'm a partner here. And I've been advising on data protection and privacy law for a very long time. And also, I'm the chairman of the Data Protection Forum. Do check us out. Good. And I'm Laura Scaife, and I work with Ashley. And the things that I focus on is social media. And I've also written a couple of books on terrorism, surveillance, social media, and data monetization. Mm. I'm impressed. So... For listeners, that information will be in the show notes if you want to follow up also on the forum that uh, Ashley mentioned. We can talk about SARS and personal data, but first of all, we're going to talk about this case, um, Rudd against Biddle, which was in the High Court recently. And I'm just going to read out some bits to give you the background. Dr. Rudd was a pretty eminent medical doctor in the field of asbestos and related diseases. He's kind of been published in about 100 different peer-reviewed journals, and he was pretty well known, is called an as expert witness in, in a lot of cases. Mr. Biddle was someone who worked in the manufacturing industry in relation to asbestos and had led a thing called Asbestos Watch, which despite what it sounded like, was actually a pro-manufacturers of asbestos. And he had been in the last X years campaigning uh, against what he thought was incorrect evidence about the link between asbestos and cancer, uh, and in particular had made a number of claims about Dr. Rudd saying that Dr. Rudd was conspiring other people to defraud manufacturers in, in cases, basically saying that the expert evidence he was giving in court was not based on any serious science and he was doing it deliberately to make money out of it. And in fact, he, Mr. Biddle, had actually reported Dr. Rudd to the GMC, which is the General Medical Council in the UK, which regulates uh, the doctors and the GMC decided there's no case to answer. But these are fairly serious allegations and therefore the whole SAR thing should be seen in that context. Both sides were lawyered. So there's a lot of money at stake. The loser would have to pick up not only his bill, but the other person's bill. At a rough guess, that would be about £150,000, given the amount of litigation that had been going on. Both were individuals rather than companies. It will come to that in a minute. And therefore, that was quite a lot of money at stake. That is the background. It's worth actually, just so people understand the context, that the judge, when he takes evidence, always uh, reflects on who he thought was a good witness, i.e. truthful, and who he thought wasn't a good witness. And the judge was very clear that he thought Dr. Rudd was a good witness. Uh, Mr. Biddle 
wasn't a good witness. That came up quite clearly in that. So we're going to start talking. We're going to talk about SARS and so on. And that's that's a background to the case. It was under the old DPA, the UK DPA, therefore not under the GDPR. But a number, uh, a lot of it is actually quite similar. Where there are differences, we're going to call out the differences. But the most of it we're talking about to the bit, the bits which apply under the GDPR. So it's useful from that perspective. And I've talked enough. Ashley, do you, you've got a lot of experience of SARS, but both you and, and Laura have. Do you want to kick off in your some general comments about SARS and how they work in practice? Sure. I, mean, I tend to think they are largely misunderstood. And there's a risk that people don't respond to them properly. So as we'll go on to, this is a case about them not responding to them properly. If you look at some of the other cases, there's some nice ones in the context of private investigators, where someone tries to make an investigation of an individual and they reply by asking, giving a SAR against the investigator to find out what they know about them. So that's a, a common example. But the ones you tend to see more often in the, for corporates are SARs that you find coming into your business from customers or employees asking SARs. Perhaps they've been unhappy about their review or they've been dismissed or something. Those are the most common varieties. Um, and we tend to find that you need differing levels of response depending on the nature of the SAR. But this is one of the tricks we've got to work out, and maybe we'll develop this in our uh, talk today, about what sort of SARS merit more attention and what sort of SARS merit less. And in determining that level of attention, how much effort do you need to go to if you're responding to the SAR in terms of finding the information to give to the individual? Okay. Would you concur with that, Laura? I would, and I'd just like to say I only wish we'd done this as a 10-part um, murder series documentary style with a reveal at the end, because I think that could have been jolly good fun. But, dear listener, um, I think Ashley has picked up on something really important there. Um, when you get a subject access request in, it can be the very first time you've ever had one, and it can feel like a really onerous um, and slightly terrifying experience. And what we really want to do today for you is to just provide you some sanity sense checks, um, unpack this case, which has got some really interesting advice and frameworks from the judge, which I think a lot of people really cry out for in terms of search criteria in particular, the duty to search, how far, what you have to supply. These things are considered and we'll look at them from both sides. And then to just hunker down into thinking about how you can go about putting this into your day-to-day practice, because sometimes SARS can be a little bit more routine and sometimes they can have a litigious aspect it depends where it's coming from. And I'd say in uh, my experience and I'm sure Ashley and Mark will hop in. SARS rarely come in glorious isolation for people to see how their data is being processed. Usually there's some sort of contextualized claim or a grievance or something sitting in the background which can rightly or wrongly inform how you deal with the process. So we're going to break that apart today and just think about some of the common sense points. Okay, well, why don't we, we, we had a bit of an earlier discussion, and one of the things that came up was that the general, the ICO guidance in the UK uh, at the moment says that when you respond to a, a SAR, you don't have to provide the documents. All you have to do is provide the information. Okay, now often people do provide the document because frankly it's easier than redacting the information out. Do you think that is still the case under the G, I'll ask both of you, under the GDPR? Is GDPR a SAR under the GDPR information only, or is it documents as well? So this is probably the most interesting question 
because it is material to the amount of effort you put in uh, about what you need to respond. And if you're in this situation where you don't want to respond fully, and many of our clients don't, then you really want to hang on to this bit of the law in order to give to justification for a partial response. So this is a really important question. So in the tradition of the UK, we never had the concept that you had to provide the whole document. You had to provide, and there's a rather peculiar bit in the law, but the information in the document rather than the document itself. And across Europe, there was a hodgepodge of different approaches about whether people are providing the document or information about the document. Under the GDPR, it's quite clear that they want you to provide a copy of the document. So that's changed under the new law. And then in our, although the GDPR has direct effect, which means it's kind of law in England, we of course have our Data Protection Act 2018. And in there, it talks about access to the information. So there's three different standards. And in my dealings with these SARS across Europe, I can tell you that there's a similar di disparity in different countries. Different lawyers across Europe will tell you different things as to what exactly is required. So it's a puzzle. It would really be a good area for EDPB, uh, that Central Data Protection Authority, for guidance from them to understand what exactly is required. But for, for our discussions, uh, I think that, as you say, Mark, it's really what's practical is the main driver. If it is easier for you to provide the full document and it doesn't prejudice you in any way, then clearly you're going to be providing the full document, less the redactions and things we'll talk about later on. Okay, that's, that's helpful. And in this particular case, they had, just so we know, a lot of information had been provided. It had been heavily redacted. Well, and most... Some hadn't been provided, a number of exceptions were claimed, and the bit that was provided had third-party personal, third personal data redacted out. So whether names were put in, it was XXX out, so that wasn't visible. And actually, what Mr. Rudd really wanted to know is who were Mr. Biddle's co-conspirators? Who had he been I can use that term, who had he been sending the, the information to, and that's what he was trying to get hold of. Shall we talk just very briefly about the exceptions that Mr. Biddle tried to rely on for not providing uh, all uh, the data? There was two main exemptions he relied on. One was journalism, and, and the other one was uh, the regulatory exemption. Do you talk a bit about that, Laura? Yes. So um, one of the things that um, Mr. Rudd tried to advance was that because he was publishing materials um, of a quasi-academic nature, so we say in trade publications, he could avail himself of the journalistic exemption with regards to some of the processing. And I, I think it's worth just saying here um, for the listeners that the journalism exemption is quite narrow. It applies in very specific circumstances. And if you're going to rely on it, the way that it is formulated under Section 32 of the Data Protection Act 1998 and where we find it now in the UK um, under the Data Protection Act 2018, you have to demonstrate that what you're doing is gathering information that's of a journalistic nature or literary and you are gathering it with a view to publication. So theoretically, so far so good, it, it could apply. However, uh, in the case 
when the claim was uh, re-particularized um, and then resubmitted, Mr. Rudd decided to change his processing ground to domestic purposes exemption and said that he was processing it in a private capacity. And the judge um, took some issue with this and explored both of the exemptions and said that with regards to journalism, it wasn't immediately obvious whether Mr. Rudd could rely on it because he hadn't satisfied it the conditions. It wasn't Mr. Rudd, it was the other one, Biddle. But Biddle, yes. yeah, sorry, Biddle. Okay. And the fact that the way I read the judge was very clear. There's, a communi- there's communication and there's journalism, and those are two very distinct things. Is kind of what he said that if you communicate to someone, okay, that's not subject to the to the journalism. I mean, I I, I don't know how you, what you thought. Like I read, he was he, the judge was taking quite a pragmatic approach. Is this really journalism, or are you just using journalism as a smokescreen? Well, I think it comes to a wider question of around who is a journalist, which is um, in the internet age a very difficult question indeed to formulate because um, there's the concept of armchair journalism now. So could a person who's running a small blog or a, a Facebook page now become a journalist? The exemption could become applied very wide indeed. Um, clearly, there are arguments on both sides of the fence because sometimes citizen journalism, as it's so called, um, as opposed to investigative journalism um, for commercial gain um, or through, say, broadcasters can be quite different things. And, and, you know, armchair journalism does have an important role to play in in uncovering stories sometimes. The challenge you have is, is that if you can apply it successfully, it exempts you from pretty much all of the requirements of um, data protection, save for data security. The other thing to be aware of, um, if this is advanced as a ground, is that the Information Commissioner has powers of written determination and can stop publication of such materials before they are in the public domain and they can make an assessment as to whether journalism applies. So one of the interesting things about this case would be how it would be looked at um, post-GDPR and um, with the Data Protection Act 2018 in force I think that this might have received a little bit more consideration, but ultimately I think the same result would have been achieved. Interesting. So you could say that Mr Biddle would have been better if he'd, ru- if he'd, if he'd been running a blog at the same time on this stuff, and then he could have relied, then he would have been made it easier for him to rely on the journalism exemption. His problem would have been was he's actually making these I mean, the judge said this is more like a defamation act than anything. So it had made these defamatory comments in public. So it'd been quite hard to run, unless he could sustain it, he'd broken himself up to a risk there. Yes, and as you mentioned, um, sort of at the top of today's uh, podcast, also because we have a company involved as well, um, we had to distinguish what materials were produced through the company for the company's own efforts as opposed to what was produced in a private capacity or a journalistic capacity. That's a good point, and we'll come on. Let's come on to the company bit in a minute. the The other exception was the regulatory exception, and he, if I understood it correctly, and the judgment can be a bit confusing sometimes. He he said, "Well, I provided this stuff to other regulatory bodies like the GMC. Therefore, I, Mr. Biddle, can take comfort, I take protection from from the regulatory exemption." And the judge was not very sympathetic to that approach, was he, I understand it. Yes, um, that's correct, Mark. I think um, it's really much like most of the exemptions that were sought to be relied on in this case. You have to still particularise your reliance on it, and it doesn't apply in a blanket case. So say, for instance, um, Mr. Brill needed to um, particularise how he was relying on these um, exemptions. It's not the same, for instance, 
say, if an organisation like the Ministry of Defence in the world of freedom of information was relying on a block exemption over information for, say, security purposes. And so you would still need to have evidence and be able to demonstrate on a documentary basis how you thought through the process in case you had to produce it to the information commissioner, to a tribunal, or in this case, to the court. I would go slightly narrow. I would think that you would need to have a regulatory function if you're going to claim that. So you need to have some sort of licence say you're a bank or similar, in order to enjoy that, that exemption, or, or indeed be the regulator. I think the fact you're corresponding uh, with this medical council, I don't think would I hope to enjoy that exemption in that case. I think it would depend on who's the controller of the information, whether he's controlling it or whether the regulatory authority he might advance was the controller if he was giving information um, as part of an official request. So... That could be picked so the apart. GMC could resist on the basis of this. That's no mm-hmm. problem. But it's not clear to me that the person making the complaint then. Okay, well, that's kind of the judge's view as well. There was an interesting kind of slightly odd twist um, when he had missed a bit of advance his exemptions, his claim for exemptions, was that he said, well, my duty as a controller to provide the information in response to a SAR is, uh, is a proportionate one. I don't have an obligation to leave no stone unturned. Okay, I have to be... It's a reasonable amount of effort, all that kind of stuff. It's not unlimited effort. And he seemed to try to say, it's quite odd, that, that that slightly relaxed approach applied to the exemptions as well. And therefore, you could apply journalism exemption or the regulatory exemption in that slightly more relaxed way. And the judge kind of said, basically, no. It's, it's, it's fairly, the test is the test. You've either met it, and you can substantiate the fact you've met it, or you haven't met it. There's no kind of, you're doing your best and... So I know that's that's uh, as an aside on the on the controller point. Let's just touch on that, and then we'll go back to the main issues. It's worth t- touching the halfway through the proceedings, or at some point in the kind of legal run-up, uh, Mr. Biddle turned around and said, "Well, I'm not the controller. It's me, my company." And he had an associated company, and I presume I'm not privy to any secrets that the reasoning behind this was he didn't want to be personally liable. He wanted the company, his company liable. His company have no assets, it's got limited liability, he'd be fine. The court took a fairly robust approach to that, if I remember correctly. They kind of they looked at the facts and said, no, actually, you, your company wasn't really involved, it was you all along, therefore you, Mr Biddle, are the controller. Um, and that was kind of it, which effectively meant that any bills, any damages claims would have to be paid out by Mr Biddle personally, not by his company. Yeah, it was funny. I mean, there was a change made later on in the case to, to say he was actually it was his company that was doing all this. But even the lawyers that advised him or appeared to advise him on that point got confused about responding to the SAR in his name or the company's name. So this is a good kind of red flag for <laughs> responding to SARS. Be really clear who your controller is and if you're an advisor, who your client is before responding because otherwise you can get caught up. Because I think if you are, I mean, it's fairly futile. If you are responding to a SAR and you don't want to respond, uh, clearly you only have to respond on the behalf of the controller you act for or the controller that you are. So really worth uh, keeping an eye on that because clearly the lawyers here got, a bit of, got their knickers and a twist over it. And there's a point there, I think, to make. Um, if, if you get a subject access request um, come through your door, pause and really think before you make any response because um, within this case the lawyers did come in at a slightly later stage and I think some of the groundwork in terms of reliance on exemptions, responses there have been some things laid down which then you have to work your way through and um, what I would say to listeners is 
if you think you have a SAR where you're going to need a bit more assistance, do come for um, legal assistance early on because otherwise you can find yourself in a slight intellectual cul-de-sac and it can be challenging then to unpick that as the process unfolds. Yeah, no, well, that's, um, that's a good point. And it's, you know, one of the, a lot of SARs are fairly routine and there's some SARs which are far from routine. This clearly fell in, fell into the far from routine SAR. The judge was very critical. I mean, both both Mr. Biddle and Mr. Rudd had, was advised, were advised by law firms, some arriving later than others, clearly. But actually, the judge was very critical of the way both law firms had, had handled it, basically said it was chaotic. Um, and we maybe will t- if we have touch touch on that late, later on about uh, the level of ex- expertise that is available or not available in this area at the moment. So... So talking about anything else you want to say about SARS, so we kind of talked about some of the specific issues, SARS generally. Anything you want to say more about SARS? Any advice you'd give about SARS generally? So let's talk about the effort thing, because it's slightly weird, isn't it? Because if you have invested technology to index all of the information in your company, and so forth, it's quite easy just to do like a Google search, but one on your, on your own stuff, then the, the law kind of suggests that you should do those searches and you should produce that information. But if you've not made that investment and it's difficult to search and find information, then you still have to uh, follow the guidance about the level of effort that's required. And the ICO code is actually quite good here about showing that level of effort. But actually, you might be held to a slightly lower standard because it was a little bit more difficult uh, to produce that information. I think on balance, for me, and I'm a fan of technology, I think you're better having the search technology and using that to find the information. And I think that when the judges look at this question, uh, I can't be certain, but my hunch is, because they're familiar with uh, discovery and disclosure requests, so if you have a big case, you have computing technology that reviews all these files that go into court, and then you use like a thing like a virus checker, you, you give it search terms, and it looks at all the documents and the computer tries and finds relevant stuff, the judges understand that. That's part of the court process. And so I think they're thinking of that when they're thinking of tools, automated tools for doing SARS. Uh, that's kind of their expectation that you should be able to type in the keywords, type in the name of the data subject, and just get stuff back. That is straightforward. And so all these complaints about, I mean, we've seen them here, we see them in the uh, Dawson Dame and Taylor Wessing case, which we should come on to soon. That's one of our cases, actually. You know, these complaints were, oh, it's too difficult to respond. The judges just won't have it. They expect you to be able to produce documents at the end of a search uh, command line. Simple as that. Okay, that's helpful. The danger, if you, I guess, having the automation is great. The danger is you produce stuff too quickly without it getting... Rev- if it's a routine, routine SAR, no problem. If you've got an unusual SAR, then you need some kind of, yeah, here's the data, then what do I disclose, what don't I disclose? Well, I think you've got to go through a process. So the first step is I think you've got to have a good job at finding the data. And then once you've got it, the next stage is whether you're going to be applying some of these exemptions. So we mentioned the journalist exemption and the regulatory exemption. Uh, Actually, on journalism, I think there's a consultation out, isn't there, in the UK for the journalism code. So let's see what comes out for that, and we'll see if armchair journalists uh, get protection or not. But also, you've got to work out whether there's litigation or legal privilege. Two different things there is going to apply. So that's that second stage. And then lastly, and this uh, Rudd case is is great on this too, is when you are looking at the documents that that are coming back, 
and you're deciding whether you're giving a copy or a summary of them, that's that information document point, then you decide to what extent you have to blank out people's, other people's names in the document. And I thought I was clear about that until this case came along, and I'm now not clear, and now there's more work needs to be done on that redacting of third-party names. It's all good fun. I think the okay, so the, I think that redact, yeah, absolutely, that redacting third-party names is a tricky one. It was approached in quite an interesting way, I thought, by the judge, because and here's the difference between the old DPA and the new GDPR. Because and it's all about the recipients' data here. Um, well, there's at least three sources of personal data about third parties relating to Mr. Rudd, the claimant. There's who provided the information to Mr. Biddle, okay, there's, that's, that's the sources, there's the recipients, who Mr. Biddle provided information to, and then I guess the third one is Mr. Biddle had alleged that Dr. Rudd was conspiring with other people and had victimised other people. So it is, uh, so the third kind of category is alleged co-conspirators of Mr. of Dr. Rudd, alleged victims of Dr. Rudd, alleged something else of Dr. Rudd. Okay, those are broadly the way I see the three, three categories. Now, if we, if we start off with the, the, the one I picked up last, the people that, for example, that Mr. The Dr. Rudd was supposed to be in cahoots with, uh, the judge then applied a, a, a test as to whether that was personal data of Mr. Rudd's or not personal data of Mr. Rudd's, as I understand it. And he went back to the old Durant case, which personally I was slightly surprised. As an old, for those who not, who've, who've not followed uh, UK data protection law uh, much, Durant is an old case from, what, 10 years ago, if not more, 20 years ago? Anyway, long time ago in the data protection world, uh, in, where the judge said um, it's only personal data if it's biographical data or got a big focus on that particular individual, which is always slightly out of kilter the rest of Europe. I thought. And he went back to that case. Were you, Asher, were you surprised by that? Or do you yeah, think- I mean, I thought that, that we had rode back from Durant yeah. uh, and it was now considered to be old and not relevant law. So I am surprised he's gone back to that. But it, it gives rise to a really good puzzle about what is personal data in these sort of circumstances. And I wonder if we might chat about it between the three of us in the context of stuff that you see, you know, at work. So say, say, Mark, you and I exchange an email. So I send you an email, and in it, I, we talk about, or I talk about Laura here. Uh, clearly, I'm a data subject, because I'm the, it's from me, and I, I would have all said that, that personal data, my email, was my personal data. I would also have said that it contains personal data about Laura. She's named in the email. And I would have also have said, although I'm not sure the case is necessarily uh, agreeing with me now, that it's your personal data, Mark, because you received the email and you read it, even though you've not yet replied. And the judge seems to have taken a view that it might not be your personal data, Mark, because you've just received it. And they go back to this case, uh, these, one of these working party opinions, uh, where they talk about people coming into a meeting room and take minutes and whose personal data it is. Now, before we talk about these uh, Article 29 or EDPB opinions, I will declare my hand. I think they are just their opinions. They are not legal opinions. So in my view, in some of these documents that everyone loves, 
they haven't got it right. That's my view. But this is their view here. So they've got three people in the meeting. And the first person goes in and all three people speak. And they, and they take the view that it, the thing said by the second and third person is not personal data relating to the first. And I'm not, in, I'm not entirely convinced by that. Uh, however, it's relevant because here Mr Justice Warby relies upon that case in the case we're discussing today uh, as to show that the co-conspirators or the other people involved in the case, you know, that's not personal data. And I am not entirely convinced about that argument in well, this case here. Okay, so, so the, the, the Working Party 29 paper, it was a 2007 paper on the concept of personal data. The link will be... Uh, on the show notes, those who want to check it out. And the, the example referred to, and as well, the link to the case itself, the Rudd-Biddle case. And the example relied on by the judge in the Rudd-Biddle case was example number nine um, in there. And it is, I find, I'm not even sure his example is a... I'm, actually, I don't have a problem so much with the Working Party 29's explanation. I think that's fairly... Okay, I thought his use of it was a bit odd. But if we just backtrack, he, he was very clear that... Uh, to the extent that someone said that you that there was a statement in material saying that Dr. Rudd had conspired with Joe Bloggs, that was personal data in relation to Dr. Rudd, and he's able should be able to should be provided with that under the subject access request. To the extent the document the email had said Dr. Rudd had victimised Jane Bloggs again, personal data, and therefore that had to be disclosed. That was biographical data. He applied Durant. Then we have this recipients thing, which is kind of odd, and and it was rel- and and it came and it was odd because the DPA, the old DPA, you don't have to provide the identity of the recipients. You had to provide a description of the identity of the recipients or a description of the class or category of the recipients. Whereas Dr. Rudd wanted to know who are that, who else had been bad mouthing him and damaging him uh, in in his sector. And then, and this is your your point. The 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 judge's view was that so, if an email says Dr. Rudd conspired with Joe Smith, that was personal data and needed to be disclosed. But if that was sent in an email to Mr. X, the identity of Mr. X didn't have to be disclosed because you could understand the statement without knowing the identity of Mr. X. That was essentially his argument. I'm not sure that's right. That doesn't seem, that's not quite how I understand data protection to work. You don't really need to look at the, the purpose of it. You just want information about the person. You want their personal data. Uh, remember, uh, if this case comes up for more recent SARS, i.e. since the, one in the last year with the GDPR applies, that definition of personal data is broader under the GDPR, Data Protection Act 2018, than before. So there's even more reason to suggest that that approach might not be taken in a current case, and the, there's a there's a reasonably good chance you would have to produce the information. It is. I mean, I'm looking at uh, uh, Laura now. It is it is a bit odd because when you look at the Working Party 29 paper, they've got a slightly odd example, example nine, which the judge follows. But they're kind of three, and it's all come to do with the. It's all the relating to. Okay, there's data relating to a li- living individual. It's all to do with the relating to. That's where it all turns. And the Working Party, in in 2007, broke that down to three different flavors of relating. One, if it's about you, it's an HR file. 
on you, about you. Another one is, um, it was, perp- it was, I think the perp, I can't remember, it was used to decide information about you, take action about you, then it clearly about you. And the third one is whether it had, they called it purpose, I think in that paper, but impact is more an accurate description. And Laura, you'd have thought that if someone sent an email saying this guy's been conspiring to defraud to Joe X, that has to be information which has impact on Joe X, it's therefore personal, to, uh, 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 has impact on Dr. Rudd in this example, therefore it must be personal data because it has some impact on his, on his life. Well, I would argue, yes, that can be the case. Um, when I've done subject access requests for individuals, say where they want to know what regulators um, are holding about them or if they've started investigations or sent information off to other regulators to substantiate other forms of action, such as libel, for instance, as is mentioned here, or damages, this is precisely the type of information that's useful because it does go potentially to some sort of significance about you because it could be an allegation, say, for instance, um, whether you're professionally competent or a fraudster, um, if there have been allegations of um, malpractice or misconduct, it, it could be the very information that you need to assess if your information is being processed accurately. Very good point. I, I thought that was uh, odd, to, to say the least. Slightly obscure in, in his approach. And that's a distinction, actually, between the DPA, the old DPA, and the GDPR. And the GDPR gives you, doesn't have the, gives, says, Basically, uh, you need provided with the recipients or either classes or categories of recipients, I can't remember which, um, and has a broader definition of, uh, of personal data anyway. So I would assume that, that issue won't arise in quite the same way under the GDPR. Well, I, I think there's a really interesting point here for any sort of litigation action sitting in the back of it. Because if you look at Article 15 GDPR and how it's been implemented across member states, um, it clearly says that the information that can be disclosable with regards to third parties is recipients or categories of recipients to whom the data have been or will be disclosed, which I think is very interesting indeed. That seems to go much wider than just what already exists. And I've always assumed that that, that recipients or categories was purely a numerical thing. If you disclose it to less than 10 people, it's got to be identities of those 10 people. If you disclose it to 1,000 people, well, you don't have a list of 1,000 of them, you break it down by categories. Does you th- is that, would that be your view as well? I think it... I don't know. I think a court would be interested in what it is you were talking about. So uh, a disclosure to all your podcast listeners is going to be a category of listeners and not naming them individually. A letter, one-on-one letter, is going to be to a specific individual, so that's clear. So what about if you send the same letter to 100 people? Does that form, can you form that in that class in that case, or do you want to name the 100 people? It's not clear, not clear from this judgment. but it is clear that in that final process that we talked about in managing your SARS, you do need to pay more attention now on that disclosure bit and what you're supposed to produce and what you're not supposed to produce uh, because uh, clearly it's a matter of issue. We see, I would argue that's always been there. Um, whenever I've approached SARS, um, it's not necessarily always popular and you, you may be smiling as you listen to this, but I always say... The foundation work of the searches and not running ahead with yourself and thinking about um, classes of exemptions or whether you can um, 
just take away blocks of information by saying it's not personal data or it relates to third parties is really not the right approach to um, looking at subject um, access rights, which is not just about disclosure. It's a wider thing around checking your data is being processed lawfully. And I think that if you want to have any sympathy with your approach by the courts or with um, indeed the regulator hoping you don't get to the court stage, you need to be able to demonstrate that you've undertaken your subject access request in earnest. And if you cannot demonstrate that or if you simply say, we're relying on Durant, for instance, or this case, and we're just not going to do any searches, I think you will have a very hard time, um, especially in the world of GDPR, because I think it's hard to reconcile with the notion of accountability and whether you're doing things fairly and interpreting fairly. So I would also always say do the foundation work properly and, and really pay attention to the searches because actually everything comes from that in terms of all of the decisions you make subsequently on the data and indeed that's how it played out in this case. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting, I mean, I think that's very good advice actually. Let me just have a quick uh, digression on this, uh, what is personal data or not. In the previous podcast I said when can a photograph not be personal data? And here's the answer as it presently exists on the ICO website in the UK and I kind of wonder whether some of the definitions of personal data uh, which can exist at the moment are slightly uh, out of date and, this, and it's been, the scope has been expanded over time. And the example that the, uh, the ICO gives, the link will be on the show notes, is here it is. A journalist takes a photograph on the beach on a sunny day to publish in a local newspaper alongside a story about record-breaking temperatures. The photograph includes some individuals who are relaxing on the beach and is of sufficient quality that some individuals may be identifiable. The uh, journalist is not processing the photograph to learn anything about any of the individuals whose images were captured, nor is it likely that he would do so. When processed by the photographer, the photograph would not be personal data as it is not used to record, learn or decide something about individuals. Um, That's okay. So an ordinary photo not taken, you know, taken for illustrative purposes with individuals, it's not in it, it's identifiable individuals in it, it's not personal data, it's what the ICO says then. Then the scenario changes. One of the individuals photographed on the beach had told their employer that they needed to attend a funeral and had taken off, taken compassionate leave from work that day. The colleague colleague sees a photograph published in the newspaper, scans a copy, emails it to the manager of the individual photographed, the photographs added individuals' personal file in order to start disciplinary proceedings for taking time off on the, under false pretenses. At that point, it then becomes personal data. Now, that is, do you think that's an accurate statement of the law as it presently exists? I mean, this is, this is still on the ICA's website. It's probably been there for the last, I don't know, five or ten years. Do you think the GD, with GDPR now in force, that's still good law? No, I don't think so. I think, I mean, they've got this kind of purpose-driven thing here. I don't think that's how the law works now. Uh, we know from the GDPR, one of the questions uh, under the old law, the old English law, was whether photographs were sensitive personal data. If you had glasses, did it show you bad eyesight or race or whatever it might be? Uh, and so interestingly, in the GDPR, it expressly says that photographs are not sensitive or special categories of data. So... If it's saying that, it's implicitly assuming that they are personal data of a sort. So I, I don't agree with this ICO guidance. I don't think that's right. Uh, we talked about the expansion of 
the definition of personal data earlier. It talks about online identifiers. Uh, so people now know that IP addresses and MAC addresses are definitely personal data without any other uh, information. And so if it's possible uh, through some fancy AI brain that they can recognize who you are or match your face with another photograph uh, because of your picture, it's looking a lot like a personal data to me. And indeed, I see the news. We've got a case running uh, in Wales as to whether the police surveillance tools are going to be uh, are infringing personal data and privacy rights. And so, and in San Francisco, there's a case at the moment where there's a question over the risk of processing because that they're doing man profiling with the police, and actually the algorithms are building in an inherent racial bias um, towards some members of communities being more likely to have committed crime. And so there's a whole question around automation, um, if it raises more privacy issues um, on, on a general basis and infringement with civil liberties. Now, presumably, if you were, uh, had an identical twin, you might not be able to run this argument so easily. But for everyone else, <laughs> I think your photographs are going to be personal data. And if you do have an identical twin, do feel free to contact Ashley. He's in the show notes. <laughs> he can help you. He can help you. you get special yeah, defences yeah. and data protection law. <laughs> OK, well, that's interesting. And then, OK, then we had... And then the information... Let's, and then let's come on to this bit about uh, when you're disclosing uh, data about third parties and the data you have in, the, in your response to a SAR. So what Mr. Biddle had uh, released some data, not enough data according to the judge because the exemptions he, he applied, he relied on, didn't apply, that kind of stuff. Whenever there was a name in there other than Mr. Rudd's name, he, he XX'd it out so he couldn't see it. And he hadn't tried to obtain consent uh, from all those third parties, probably too many of them. Um, the, but the judge took, uh, took, or wasn't happy with the approach that Mr. Biddle took just to XXing. He just said it was too sweeping an approach. Yeah, this is going to make all these technology providers who are offering up, you know, DSAR solutions, give them a problem because a lot of those are predicated on them having machine learning that identifies personal data. And so they want to you know, have this automatic redaction in those systems. And I think it's a great idea, and I help some of those companies, uh, but now they've got an additional puzzle, because they've got to look at this case and see whether there needs to be now some sort of human review, perhaps there's some more information points that's about whether all those redactions are appropriate. So this is one of the surprising things that's come out of this case. Uh, I've hinted at it before, I thought, Blanket redaction, pretty much good enough. Now, not so. And so we do need to pay attention as to that strikeout of names or indeed titles if it's obvious that the title refers to a particular individual. We said that's interesting because I, I didn't take that view originally. I have done some really complicated requests with clients where the um, documents to be reviewed runs into the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And although it's obviously very um, turgid work, we had to really stop and think and analyze and perhaps in the world of GDPR look at doing maybe a mini DPIA to see whether consent was feasible or appropriate. And we thought that in some circumstances it actually was because we knew who we were going to be contacting. I think part of the, the problem with this judgment, I think for the way the, uh, the court looked at it was that it couldn't really be demonstrated that serious effort had been put into the question about whether um, consent could be achieved. And they saw it as an either or test under the mm. law. It's either consent or you say, um, there's you know, such an issue to the third party that actually it might cause them distress and we won't infringe their rights and consequently we're not going to supply the information. But what they couldn't demonstrate was how they'd 
um, looked at consent first before they got to perhaps looking at that other ground to rely on. And so I'd say look at it a bit more as a two-step process and spend some time asking yourself very honestly whether it can be done. But as Ashley says, if you're doing wholesale disclosure through electronic means, I suppose the next logical question for those providers is how do you build something into the process that brings up the, um, the flashing warning light to say you've got X number of third parties and X number of categories does this need human review potentially? But would you think that people, I know it's, it's, I, I take it's easy if you get consent, but do you think people have to go through both steps, by which I mean it's not an either or test. You can go to someone and say, can I have your consent? They say no. You're still entitled to disclose, so it's reasonable to disclose mm-hmm. in those purposes. I think it's been, you know, previously people looked at it either or, but I think what they're sort of saying here is, have you considered, is consent workable first before you then go to that other test? Because otherwise it's, it's so much easier to apply the other test, but Perhaps if um, there'd be more concrete submissions on how that was arrived at, the judge may have had a little bit more sympathy. Well, what, 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 what Mr. Biddle did was he, he assumed that it, wasn't, it was unreasonable in every case uh, to disclose it, therefore didn't disclose any of it. And I think that's what sunk him. If he'd, what the judge said, we have to go through the case-by-case basis, so maybe not depending how many individuals have been involved, maybe there's a thousand of them, maybe not all thousand, but if you've broken down into categories and could show a kind of realistic, genuine, good-faith effort, which you auditable do it, then that would have been sensible. But just to, just to blank everybody out. Well, precisely. And if, if you think about it, you might have a category of recipient where they've given you highly confidential information, perhaps, say, in a whistleblowing context, if, say, we take this to something that may come across your desk. And it might not be reasonable to supply that information. And that can be a category of person where it simply would not be reasonable, could prejudice or distress them. But it's not reasonable just to, to throw that over everything, much like with the, um, the journalism exemption or with um, the points around privilege. You, you can't just take that very wide blanket approach towards it. OK, that's very helpful. Well, we, we usually aim to come in about 30, 35 minutes on these. We're running slightly over time, so I'm going to wind, wind things up a bit. There's one th- point I want to make a bit about the lawyers generally here without naming any names. But before I do that, I mean... Uh, Laura and Ashley, is, is there any other kind of useful takeaways you think are worth uh, w- worth learning from this case? I mean, if if, this, if listeners want more on this material, uh, I'll give you some contact details later. Let us know. As Ashley mentioned, there's you know, there's a lot more material around this kind of stuff. Um, and and if Ashley may be holding or Laura various webinars, seminars on these kind of things, I'll put those on the show notes. You're about to follow up. But anything particular? Well, well, the most important bit for me is back to just a nice circle to back to where we started from. I think the most important thing is to make an accurate assessment of what sort of sour it is and how much effort is required. Because clearly we've got one end of the spectrum, these kind of crazy, uh, uh, you know, part of a different dispute type sours where they spend, you know, 20, 30,000, 40,000 pounds responding to them. And your common and garment SAR from a customer who just wants to know a bit about what's on their account, uh, which you respond to, you know, for in no time at all. And the risk is you'll get into trouble if you respond or don't respond to a SAR which you think was inconsequential, but in fact was masking one of these disputes because the courts are not very sympathetic to people to respond to SARs badly. So really important to make an assessment as to, you know, what's, you know, what sort of SAR, where is it on this scale? And to understand there is a scale. 
And so our discussion today, not to horrify people, has really been about the crazy end where you, you know, it's like litigation, everything's in, in, in super fine detail. Uh, so we're not saying we have to apply all this to every SAR. What we're saying is that's, that's the one end of the extreme. But you've got to make sure that you understand there is a spectrum and you've got to make sure that when the SARs come in, you're doing the right thing in relation to that SAR. Otherwise, you'll get stuck. I think my advice, um, I'm just going to offer you something from the in-house perspective as well, because I've, I've kind of been there and all those battle scars like some of our audience today, is SARS can come in at any time, but perhaps if you've been fortunate enough not to have them yet or you've just dealt with a couple, just go and have a chat to whoever runs your IT or who is maybe your disclosure provider and just go get a feel for how your systems work and where you might need to get some external support or maybe look at reviewing your process um, with legal assistance or with technical assistance. I think that's incredibly important because once you get to grips with that, it's a lot less scary. And actually, a lot of the headaches that arise with this are operational in basis. And yes, we've got to look at the law. But if you can get better relationships with those teams, that can be phenomenally helpful in terms of them telling you what's achievable what isn't and it can allow you to design a SAR process which is more effective because your requests might not be coming into your legal function or you might not have an evolved function that can deal with these things and so it's really important just to have a grip on what the sophistication of um, your systems is um, as much as you can and I say that because otherwise you can end up putting requests out there for document searches um, which maybe your systems just simply don't support or where you might need to get some third-party help on. So if you could take one thing um, away from today, it would be go get a cup of tea with whoever that person is or you know, have a chat to us or have a chat to a provider and just get a better grip on the technical aspect of it. Okay, very helpful. And the point I was going to make with some concern to me is that, so as I mentioned earlier, the judge, both, both uh, Mr. Rudd, Dr. Rudd and Mr. Riddle were, had lawyers working for them the judge was very critical about the work the lawyers had done, actually. I mean, in that kind of understated English way that ju- judges take, he just they said it was, well, very poor. Um, and, and there's another case recently that uh, people may have seen in the UK where uh, a pension provider grows, I think it was called, was doing lots of mail-outs, and they got fined £40,000 because their... Uh, their mail outs infringed uh, PECA, the Privacy Electronic uh, Regulation. Um, now, that poor pension provider had taken advice from a law firm and from a data protection specialist. And that, so they'd double checked everything and they'd been told, yeah, it's all right, go and do it, only to get fined £40,000 by the, by the ICO plus a loss of reputation, etc. And you, so that starts me thinking, you know, that this is kind of a bit odd, right? So data protection isn't brand new. It's been around for a while. Is it, you get, these are two data points which suggest there's not enough capable people around the market handling this kind of stuff. Is that your, would that be your view as well, or is it just me being slightly cynical? Uh, I think that one of the striking things for me is that, uh, companies who have been enjoying their GDPR compliance over the last couple of years have been taken through completely different processes by different advisors. There is no consistency to approach. Mark, you and I remember when we did all that year 2000 stuff, uh, everyone did the same sort of thing to all the clients. Not so with GDPR. 
And that's interesting that there's been such disparity of approach to this. So I, I'm not going to badmouth others and say whether they're good or bad. I just find it odd there's been such differing approaches to this law. And so that must lead you to a suspicion that some might be better than others. Uh, and so uh, you do need to be careful, I think. I mean, it's like everything, whether it's hiring a plumber or going to a doctor, whatever it is, just ask them questions. Have they done this before? What sort of results have they got? You know, just, just have that usual quality. The fact that the person's got a qualification or as a lawyer, whatever they are, doesn't say they're good or, or bad. You must make your own investigation. That's always the case. Uh, because there's good lawyers and good uh, bad lawyers and there's good plumbers and bad plumbers. You've just got to ask and get comfortable you've got the right one. Good. You agree with that, Laura? I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And and just as this is episode two, um, I'd like to pose a question to Mark and Ashley, if I may. So I saw podcasts start to get in their stride in episode two. Who would you like to see from fiction make a subject access request? (laughs) That's very good. Well, we'll answer that next time. We will answer that next time. That's actually a new parlour game. In fact, I may launch that as data monopoly or something yeah well if you've got any ideas listeners um i think you should put them in and um we'll we'll try to respond to them and uh, maybe that's how we'll assess who's a good plumber and a bad plumber okay well that thank you thank you to ashley thank you to laura uh that's been very helpful and very uh interesting and that brings us to the end so future episodes of gdpr now are going to be looking at uh, security issues, cyber insurance, cyber insurance will be the next one, programmatic advertising, GDPR from the SME perspective, and reviewing some of the available technology that's out there. Um, if you've got any questions or things you like addressed, you can drop me an email at info at thisisdpo.co.uk. Um, there'll be show notes in, well, in the show notes, so if you want links to things, um, I'll put in contact details, both Laura and Ashley there, and any other information they make available will be there, so f- please feel free to follow up. Um, if you've got any questions, drop us a line. We'd like to hear from you. Thank you. <laughs>